This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hi. Hey, baby. <laughs> this is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kinchin, the writer who doesn't write enough. And this is episode 16. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Fanfare. 15.2, you mean? Okay, we're going to fix that. We're gonna, there's a weird like naming convention yeah. going on. This is episode 16. Episode 16. Because when you do like the 8.2s and 7.0s, I'm, it just like uh, diminishes the sheer number of episodes we've done. I agree. I'm not a fan of the point system. I'm so, so sorry. You should have said so. I'm just the attractive <laughs> spokesmodel. I'm not the way you're lounging right now is just ridiculous with you saying that. I didn't deal with administrative tasks. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, I see. Well, anyway, this is episode 16. Um, Trapper's Hello was a nod to New Orleans. Yeah. Because, I mean, people say, hey, baby, there. Hey, baby. Hey, baby. <laughs> That's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I, I don't have much to say because you have chosen this author. We're continuing our theme of morality yep. and trying to approach it in a very non-religious way. Yeah. So I'm excited to learn about who you've chosen. Okay, well, I kind of, when we first chose the theme, I was like, oh, this is grand. I have the whole world at my doorstep. I can just choose, pick uh-huh. up the litter. Yeah. And <clears throat> we kind of chose it relatively short notice, so like I couldn't order a text and have it in in time to read it and then mm-hmm. you know be able to do so um i found someone that i have never heard of never read before and i got her book and i read through it and it was great and i said you know what i might get in trouble come podcast in time because... oh was she really like religious no oh. but she was a and we talked a little bit about this in the last episode she was a uh white lady from the 1700s oh okay yes yes and we're trying to be a little diverse because i tend to choose like white women from 1700s and a little more modern too even though i'm like ooh, 1906 so modern right so this (laughs) so the i wound up kind of last minute calling you and being like hey look i'm about to do an about face i need you to know what's going on yeah and i kind of dug into my repertoire because the podcast is i think really about highlighting authors and texts that aren't uber popular mm-hmm. and kind of shining a light Definitely. on them. And so I, I went back to, I guess, my school days um, and thought, you know, I've got somebody in the back of my mind who would be great. Mm-hmm. Somebody with whom I was already familiar, but with whom I don't think many others are familiar. So he's a playwright and he's from New Orleans. And I chose a text that deals with morality in an interesting way. It does have it's it does have religious themes but not in the way that we're but not in a way <laughs> yeah. that like we're used to dealing with it it's it's a uh, it's somewhat satirical uh-huh. but it's really uh like a what's the word i'm looking for it's a critique maybe the word okay no that's great like cuz when i when we were talking about like trying to avoid religion it's more of like trying to avoid those like texts that mm-hmm. are just like instructions like father flanagan's guide to moral living <laughs> yeah from, one must mm-hmm. dot 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 yes and just yeah so this <laughs> a religious critique is cool yeah. and fine especially if it's funny well this is one of those satires that's not really funny and maybe a satire has to be never funny. mind <laughs> this well well satire is just like mocking right so this it is so definitely kind of a situation where it's mm-hmm. yeah there's some mocking going on but it's yeah. also kind of i think uh sentimental might be the right word Ooh. because it's kind of meant uh-huh. to be sad we'll get into that kind of interested to hear what you have to say about it all because sometimes i bring something to the table and i'm like oh, i know exactly how she's going to respond uh-huh. and you'll be like 
I don't like this. I think this is going to be easy for you to gauge, though, because if it's from New Orleans, I get mm -hmm. a certain way. Right. So, even if it's terrible, I'm going to be like... Your kindred spirits. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> New Orleans. Yeah. So, okay. Um, well, I guess we'll start with the history yeah. and his like life story and then get into the reading. All right, so I want to give a little historical background before I get into the history of this author. Uh -huh. So in, I forgot the year, but at the very beginning of the 19th century, maybe like 1803 or something uh -huh. like that, there was uh, a revolution in what we now know as Haiti. It was called Saint-Domingue, and it was a French colony. And what happened is the slaves had an uprising, and fundamentally all the white Frenchmen who lived there uh -huh. fled. And... Some went back to France. The but, whole island? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Like, they left okay. because their lives were at stake. Uh -huh. um, some of them went back to France, but the majority of them came to the United States. Um, some wound up in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Some wound up in Savannah. But the majority of them wound up in New Orleans as, as émigrés. Okay? And the white uh, Haitian Creole people that came to Louisiana brought with them many enslaved, right. enslaved people. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, the reason I'm telling you this is because my author's family has connection with Saint-Domingue and the Haitian Revolution. Okay. Um, my author's name is, I'm going to say it in French, mm -hmm. Victor Sejour. Mm -hmm. Now so, say it in New Orleans. Victor Sejour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's so funny because you did say it in New Orleans. You didn't say it like an American I accent. didn't. <laughs> so we can just say Sejour from uh -huh. now on. Um, he was born in 1817, and his father's name was Louis, and he was one of those people who emigrated from Haiti after the revolution. So he didn't take part in the revolution. He, like, fled he with fled. his owner. Well, I, I believe his father, Louis, was a white man. Okay. Or at uh... least a person. He was either a uh, See, it's been a while since I've done my initial research. It's been yeah. three years since I first studied this author. And the text that I was using to kind of refresh myself, it didn't specifically say. But I want to say that his father was either a white man or like Octoroon. Something very light. Or just free. free a free yeah. person. Yeah. But I believe he was, uh, something tells me he might have been white, but I think he was maybe like Octoroon or something yeah. like that. Because he was married to Sejour's mother, whose name was Heloise who was a free woman of color from New Orleans. Mm. She was actually a Creole of color. Okay. And um, the family lived together in the Vu Carre, um, and his father owned a small business there. And because his mother and father lived together, I'm assuming that his father was also a man of color mm. because um, New Orleans had and has a vibrant uh, Creole community of color. And when uh, his father came there, or when Victor Sejour was born in 1817, um, we're talking about Louisiana post-statehood. It's mm -hmm. no longer a colony. And so, but it's still a predominantly French-speaking and cultural center. But that being said, it would not have been, it would have been illegal for a white person to marry a person of color in Louisiana, just mm -hmm. like it would have been in Virginia or, you know, another yeah, southern yeah. state. So I'm assuming his parents were both people of color. Um, they weren't super wealthy, but they were of means mm -hmm. because... Uh, Sejour attended Sainte-Barbe Academy in New Orleans, mm -hmm. in the Vieux Carré, um, which is where most of the prosperous Creole families of color sent their children. Wow, I never heard school. of this. 
it may not exist anymore. Yeah, or it has a different name. Or maybe it does. Yeah. Um, but like many of his peers, Sejour mm -hmm. uh, left New Orleans in the mid-1800s for Paris in order to complete his education. This was very common I've heard of this. for yeah. Louisiana and specifically Louis free peoples of color in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, especially people who, you know, we are both familiar with the tradition of the kept women on mm -hmm. Dauphine Street yeah. and having uh, concubine who would be a black or a woman of color and having like a white family yep, yep. and those two never intersecting. But a lot of young men of color, their families sent them to be educated in Brussels or Paris. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of them never came back to Louisiana wow. uh, because the opportunities in Europe were simply better for them. Yeah, Some did. and um, But Sejour was one of those whose family said, go and be educated in Paris. He spent the rest of his life there. He never came back home. Wow. He never went back. Mm -hmm. But while there, he began to really pick up as a writer. He began to kind of discover that was his calling, and he began to produce literature. His short story, Le Moulatre, was published in 1837, and uh, it was French. It was published in a French-language abolitionist journal called um, Revue des Colonies. And it was the first known short story ever published by an African-American. Wow. So that's kind Huge. of yeah. an interesting benchmark. Mm -hmm. It had to be done yes. in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it was also, uh, Le Molatre was also one of the only works Sejour produced that ever dealt directly with race and slavery. Really? That's not something he really ever wrote about. Um, the story's narrative follows the son of a white slave owner and one of his female slaves. And the story highlights the fact that the boy's father refuses to acknowledge the son. Hmm. Okay. And the story is interesting because the son never really knows that, that the master is his father. Hmm. And there's a situation where he kills the, his master finds out it's his father, and then commits suicide. Oh, my god! So it deals with interesting or heavy themes mm -hmm. like the moral implications of slavery, mm -hmm. um, rape, patricide, suicide. So it's pretty heavy for a short story. Can yeah, you imagine? Definitely. But in 1843, when Sejour was 26, he published his first play, uh, Guerrias. Uh -huh. I think that's a Spanish word. Um, but in English, it's the Jew of Seville. That's what we call it in English. Okay. And what's so interesting, even though he was only 26, the play was accepted by La Comédie Française, uh -huh. which was like the big theater, the yeah. important theater in Paris. Between 1843 and 1875, 22 of Sejour's plays were produced in Paris. And during one season, three of his plays were produced simultaneously. Oh, my god! He was extraordinarily popular. Yeah. Um, and... I want to say that he had such profound success in Europe, uh, but not much at home in Louisiana. Oh, yeah. uh, Louisiana got, while the rest of the United States, especially in the Victorian age, got a lot of its, uh, I don't know, culture from England, uh -huh. still, like important plays or operas or 
anything that would be kind of like haute society things, yeah. they, w- they were being imported from Europe. Louisiana was different in that it was getting everything from France. Yeah, exclusively. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, yeah. So French language plays, French language mm-hmm. operas, things like that. And so Sejour's plays, because they were so popular in Paris, they were sent to like the New Orleans Opera House uh-huh. and to like theaters in New Orleans there. to be produced. Okay. And they were put on, uh-huh. but they were not popular. Um because most of the audience would have been like white Creole people mm-hmm. or people who were uh, wealthy planters from outside of New Orleans. And it wasn't, his themes didn't deal with race, but they knew he was a black writer. I would say, was it personally just who he was or was it the the content of his, his play? I think that it was a combination. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his most popular, the most popular play in New Orleans that he that was produced in New Orleans that he wrote was actually um, the one that we will be we're talking about tonight oh, okay. called The Fortune Teller and it's one of his most famous works. Okay. It was first produced in Paris mm-hmm. in 1859 and it tells the story of a Jewish child in Italy in 1745 being taken from her parents by a maid and being given to a Christian family. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the play is based on real life events. Uh-huh. In 1858 an, Ita- an Italian inquisitor ordered a six-year-old Jewish boy to be taken from his family and given to a Christian family um, because the child had apparently been secretly baptized when he was five years old oh by a family gosh. maid. Uh-huh. Okay, and so the Jewish boy's parents actively campaigned and went to court to have their child returned into their custody, returned to their custody. Um, but the hierarchy of the Catholic Church refused to intervene and so the Jewish couple never got their child back. The news of this event spread throughout Europe like crazy. It was even printed in American newspapers. Yeah. Okay. And the French were particularly appalled mm-hmm. at this. Yeah. Um, Italy at the time was a kingdom or a collection of kingdoms. So the papal state had like absolute uh, highest power. authority yeah. over mm-hmm. Italy. So that's where you would have to appeal and the pope pious something or another I didn't write that down he refused to, to sort of overturn the decision to have the child taken so the French who were not keen of course France was and is a, a Catholic country or a country that's predominantly Catholic uh-huh. but they weren't keen on um, dealing with the Vatican mm-hmm. as like the highest power of like authority in terms of government and so they weren't they weren't happy that this child had been taken away in uh, the fortune teller as in most of Europe in the time when the play takes place and the Victorian age when Sejour is writing, Jewish people had no civil rights. They were not like in Britain, I don't think they were even considered citizens Mm -hmm. in in 1859 when this is being written. And so Sejour his plot highlights this the Jewish mother's sense of impotency at at the absence of her natural maternal rights to her child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like her womanhood being less than and her yeah. ability to... That sounds familiar. Exactly. Like conversations we've had exactly. about... Exactly. ...the South. Right. ...in the United States. Um, so Jour's play was popular in terms of audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, People flocked to the theater. It had lots of showings. Um, but some critics were really surprised that the play had been approved by the French censors. And many of them deemed it overly sympathetic and pro-Jewish and uh-huh. anti-Catholic. Um, but 
Sejour was a Catholic. Mm-hmm. He was devout. Um, and he responded to critics by saying that the fortune teller is not meant to be an anti-Catholic narrative, but instead to be a condemnation of a position of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what he was saying is, look, because I am Catholic does not mean that I have to... Agree with everything yeah, the Church does. Say yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Go along with everything the Church does. Yeah. And what's interesting is uh, Sejour was very fond of the French royal family, and Napoleon III attended the opening of the fortune teller, uh-huh. um, and it was kind of, a, he was signaling his government's, he was allying his government not with the Catholic Church. He was saying, he, uh. by, by showing up to the play, he was saying, I, I'm in opposition to this. Sejour yeah. um, died in 1875, I believe, or 1876. I, the dates I found kind of conflicted, mm-hmm. but he was 57. I know that. Yeah. Um, and his death was reported by the Times in London, by Reuters in America, um, by L'Abeille de la Nouvelle Orléans, and the New Orleans Times. Uh-huh. So his death was a big deal. Yeah. As far as I know, he never married. He never had a child. But he's interesting. It's interesting because. There's so few works by Louisiana Creole writers of color that still exist, yeah. and there's even less that exist in English. We've talked about this mm-hmm. before too, and like I'm almost upset. Mm-hmm. Like remember when we went we went in on Alice Dunbar Nelson for like moving away and that mm-hmm. doing more like local color stuff. Okay, not only did you leave, but you wrote that one story about race mm-hmm. and slavery and all the crap that is going on at home, and then you didn't do any more. Right. And now you're taking up this cause for this Jewish family. Like, it feels like such a betrayal in a way. Well, you know, and we can, let's talk a little bit now about the, I don't know, culture, the term cultural relativism. Mm-hmm. I remember being used a lot in school. The fact that he left Louisiana when he did is not surprising because as a black man or a man of color or just opportunity yeah he yeah. would have i mean when in europe race was seen in such through such a different lens mm-hmm. and so the fact that he was a black man did not impede him to the same extent that it would have in new orleans yeah had he remained in new orleans likely his plays never would have been produced exactly i mean even when he was famous in europe yeah. they weren't produced so i don't blame him at all exactly. for leaving and in terms of it's hard for us to think about if you're a person who belongs to a community and you have a voice and a platform, how can you not uh, use that voice and that platform to, and even on some level, champion mm-hmm. the cause of your exactly. community? And one thing that I believe personally is Sejour often wrote about Jewish people mm-hmm. and their relationship with Christians. Mm-hmm. And I think he was using code because he he wants the audience to empathize with the Jewish people. Well, and you understand too, like okay, in Europe they don't understand necessarily mm-hmm. the the race relation exactly. issues in America. So he's like, I'm trying to talk about that, but in a right. way that you can understand it. So I could understand yeah, exactly. why he'd be like, the Jewish people here, well, this is just right. going to represent black people and exactly. and how they don't have much say in anything. But man, I know I hear exactly what you're saying, uh-huh. especially because really that one short story was the one thing. If you look at his body of work, it's the one thing that he really mm-hmm. used to address slavery and race directly. Maybe he felt like, you know, like, this is it. This is all I'm going to say mm-hmm. on this. It's messed up. And then I I don't need to feel like I am required to only right. write about this one thing. Because as an artist, 
you know, I like I think I mentioned this before, like I haven't wanted to write about race because mm-hmm. I feel like that's what everyone expects me to. <laughs> but yet I keep pumping out these stories about race. Right. So, yeah. Well, and it may be a situation where he got to Europe and after a time, one cannot help but assimilate to Mm, some degree. That's true. And so out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's real. That's a real harsh. I mean, he's still fundamentally the same person and it's going to reflect in his work. But his subject matter. I think that even in Europe, he was the other. You know what I'm saying? He he didn't get there and become a part of... Mm -hmm society fully i mean he was accepted as an artist and he was popular but like notice he never married yeah and you know so he was never he never really achieved that level of integration mm-hmm. yeah you know that's sure so uh but i do want to read a little bit from the fortune teller this is my favorite really? I've re- i have okay. read the jew of seville did it, you read the short story too I, I never found it in English. I don't oh, think it's in English. No. Uh, I, the only reason I have read, been able to read his two plays, mm-hmm. The Jew of Seville and The Fortune Teller, is because um, M. Lynn Weiss, who's mm-hmm. a professor, I think, at the University of Chicago, not the University of Chicago, the University of Illinois, mm-hmm. um, translated them. Oh, God. Well, we need to, like, contact that person yeah. and be like... This is... And I'm talking about, like, 2006 or something. Like, like 21st century, this stuff was put Jeez. in English. Man, that's crazy. So he wrote exclusively in French. Exclusively in French. I don't even know that he spoke English fluently enough to converse. Um, another thing that's interesting is... I was going to say... His work is probably better known today... Mm-hmm in France not to say that it's popular or like studied in school but Mm -hmm. I would say his name would be more easily recognized there than it would be here yeah yeah. you know that's crazy so and that's true of most Creole authors of color but also like anybody who was writing in Louisiana in French yeah in the 19th century yeah if their work survives, it survives in, in French, fr- in France, or Belgium, and stuff. This like is that. a project that we need to like undertake we is will to one like day. take that those Creole works and then translate them into English and then share them with the Creole community today. That'd be great. That would be so good. This is a part of you know even though this is a a the like with the fortune teller this is a narrative that's not Louisiana specific and it's it was not something that was celebrated much here. But I would say you're a Creole person of color, and I'm like this is part of your artistic heritage because mm-hmm. this is a creole person of color yeah who produced art yeah exactly so are you excited <laughs> i am i'm ready to hear hear his work and judge it even mm. more let me say this this is going to be kind of tricky because it's, it's a, a play, play and i've chosen a scene where there's two characters uh-huh. so i don't uh, we're going to talk about whether i'm going to be like this name and then like what she says and like this name and what she says or if i'm just going to read what did it. i do for mamie burrell's episode remember <gasps> Where I put on all those accents. Did you do all the voices? Yes. Oh my god, I love it. <laughs> and I didn't like announce names, so I think that you're just gonna have to really That's fine. Change your voice. And like pause. And it's between. too late, like women, two female characters. <laughs> Good luck. Luckily dun, I had dun, all women. <laughs> and I will give a little context like whenever I read, so okay. don't worry. It won't okay. be totally in the dark. Okay. Well, let's hear this. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so before I start, I want to give a little context to what I'm about to read. Um, there are two characters in this scene. One is named Jamea, and she is the Jewish mother. And the other character is named Marta, and she is the maid. 
in the household of Jamea and Jamea's husband. This scene is where Jamea returns from a trip she's taken with her husband, and she wants to see her baby. And um, while they were gone, the baby became very sick, near death with fever. And so the maid, who is a Christian, her first inclination is to call a doctor and a priest. So the doctor and the priest are like, this baby's going to probably die. So they christen her. Oh, okay. that's why. Yeah. And uh, so they christen her, and once she's christened and she lives, she doesn't die from her fever, um, they say we can't leave her with these Jews because now <laughs> she's a Christian, and so they give her to an aristocratic family oh my God. where she's raised. So that's the context for the scene, and again, this is the scene where the Jewish mother, Jamea, returns from her trip and uh, wants to see her baby. I'm going to do my best to distinguish between the two women. You got it. All right, so wish me luck. Okay. Scene 16 of The Fortune Teller by Victor Sejour. Jamea. Ah, Marta, Marta, removing her cape, trying to catch her breath. My dear, my dear Marta, I simply couldn't wait. I left poor Ben Muir behind and came as fast as I could, sighing. Oh, I thought it would take forever approaching her. My baby. My baby Naomi, how is she? Marta. She's... Jamea without waiting for a reply. Poor darling, is she sleeping? Shh, shh, I'll make no sound. I only want to kiss her. Marta holding her back. No! Jamea, you're right, what's the hurry? Now that I'm finally here and our child is rich, Marta worth millions, pointing to the cradle. Why, her cradle. That cradle that holds my whole reason for being. That cradle that holds my life is too small to hold her fortune. Gazing lovingly at the cradle. Oh, how I ache to see her, to give her a little kiss. How I've hungered. Oh, how I've yearned. No, I can't wait. Marta gives a start. Just imagine, a month. One whole month since I've laid eyes on her. Did she call me? Did she look for me? Has she grown? Oh, I have to. She tiptoes over to the cradle, holding her breath. Marta says aside, Poor soul. Jamea gently pulling the covers, sh shocked. She's... She isn't here. Marta, she... Where... Where is she? Marta. Signora. Jamea, as if struck by realization. Ah, of course, you've put her in my bed. Oh, dear, dear Marta, how thoughtful of you. The air is much better upstairs. She hurries up the staircase and disappears. Marta. Good God. Jamea appearing. She's not there. She but... Hurrying down the stairs. But where is she, Marta? My Naomi, where is she? Going up to her, suddenly smiling. Oh, naughty, naughty, pointing to Marta, who is still clutching her cloak about her. You're holding her in your arms. My treasure. Reaching out. Let me have her. Pulling the cloak aside and jumping back with a shriek. Ah, she, she's dead, isn't she? My Naomi is dead. That's what you're trying to tell me. Marta trying to calm her. No, no, please. Jamea, no. Then why are you so pale? Marta standing up, looking aside. Your child is alive, believe me. Jamea, then look at me in the eye. If you want me to believe you. Marta, she's alive, I swear, but. Jamea growing frantic. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is she going to tell me? What a disaster. Marta, she's lost. Jamea, lost? How? Where? Marta, lost to you. Jamea, lost to me? Marta, I had to save her. Jamea, what? From some danger? From... Tell me, tell me. Marta, from death. Jamea, my child? My Naomi? Marta, the doctors... 
The doctors gave up on gave her up. There was nothing they could do. And you saved her. You, Marta. Not I, Signora. God. Jemea, catching her breath, misunderstanding. Ah, Marta, dear Marta. Of course, I understand. You never take the credit, but you saved her, and that's all that matters. Please, how can I thank you? You, her second mother, you who were here and who took care of her, and your heart did more than all their science and their medicine, and you snatched her from the jaws of death, my Naomi. Oh, bless you, Marta, bless you. But I... Jemea, where is she? I want to see her. Marta, only God could perform that miracle, and I called on him. Jemea, God? Whose? Marta, the one true God, mine. Jemea, for a Jew? You called on your God for a Jew. Marta, she, she's not. Jemea, what? What are you saying? What are you trying to tell me? Marta, not anymore. Jemea shocked. My child, not a Jew? Marta, she's a Christian now. Jemea, my child? Marta, she was dying. I had to save her. I, Jemea, a Christian. My child. Marta, and by saving her body, I have saved her soul as well. Jemea enraged. Oh, you vile, unclean creature. You... You foul abomination saved her, you say. And who told you that I wouldn't have preferred to see her dead? Now where is she? Tell me. I want to see her. This instant, shrieking. Where is she? Jemea. They've stolen my child. They, menacingly. You're mad. Mad, do you hear me? So my child is a Christian, is she? My child, my blood, and her blood too, the ancient blood of Israel, proud and unconquered. Her blood will tell I will raise its voice within her. Marta. God will silence it. Jemea, never. You can't play with a soul, nor move it from any bo from body to body, and expect it to be at peace. Marta, God will soothe it. Jemea, no, no. You can't tear the religion of our ancestors from a heart, and expect it not to leave its roots. Marta, God will see to it. Jemea, oh, listen to her. Listen to that statue, that cold marble mouth and all its fine answers. Marta, calmly, take revenge if you must. Jemea, Revenge? Oh, yes, yes. You need have no doubt. I will. I shall. But first, tell me where she is. Where have they taken her? Where is my child? Marta. I've sworn never to say. Jemea furious. Sworn? Sworn? She swore never to say. She? What does it matter to me what you've sworn? My child. I want my child. My child, do you understand? Shaking her. <sighs> I'll make you tell me. You're a mother, too. You have a son. You will. I'll make you. Calling. Octavio, Octavio, to Marta, tell me, or he'll pay, I swear to God. I'll, you'll know what it's like to lose a child and, and to lose all hope. You'll weep for him the way I weep for her, because she's dead, you hear me? For me, my child is dead, and all, and yours will be too, calling. Octavio, come here. It's no use, he's left. I sent him away. I knew what you would do, Jemea. Oh, <laughs> she even robs me of my revenge, to Marta. Wretch, vile, miserable wretch. She bursts into tears and collapses by the chair, weeping in silence. A moment later, the door upstage opens, and Gideon returns, leaning heavily on his stick and dragging himself painfully downstairs without noticing the two women. Marta aside. Bien mir. Oh my gosh, that was so good. I feel like an idiot. <laughs> I, look, you need an award. 
I am not a theater person. <laughs> I've never read a play aloud, except for in high school for Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and I just want to say I did my best. I was laying on the floor with my eyes closed, and you're like sitting on top of this Screaming. bed, and you're like, Jamea, Marta. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, like, am I uh, listening to a movie? What is this? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, but I'm so proud of you. And that was the perfect excerpt, I think. Because mm-hmm. it's like the moment where everything's just like really what? unfolding. Oh, I don't know if we want to talk about his writing style first mm-hmm. or the actual story. Whichever you prefer. <sighs> so as far as, I mean, it's hard when you're talking about a play because like mm-hmm. you said, you're not a theater major. What? We have not read many plays, mm-hmm. but I, I noticed it's mostly dialogue, of course, that it's very realistic. There was a lot of them like interrupting each other right. going back and forth it's a very heated moment right. and i really appreciated that like it didn't sound stiff it didn't right. sound weird it was like this slow really tense unfolding of this horrible mm-hmm. thing and then like in an instant like she's just like you are a vile woman and when she said that her like she was a statue and her mouth was marble <laughs> and she was cold i was yeah. like oh yes this is wonderful <laughs> like there's definitely creative just talent here it's not just about a story and i think a lot of the time in plays it is just about the story just about the story and about the actors yeah. but this is like him being like nah nah mm-hmm. I, I can write yeah. <laughs> what do you think about the writing well when you read through and you look at it there's a lot of ellipses and breaks mm-hmm. like you say because these characters are interrupting one another he, he's written it very conversationally for the time period in which he has set the place mm-hmm. like it's still kind of like Nobody would be, if there was a knockdown drag out today, <laughs> I would be like, you vile wretch, you foul <laughs> being. So right. But like, it's very conversational for the time period. Exactly. Yeah. No, when she got in, in the beginning, I think, and she was just like, oh, I don't even remember what the exact words were, but she was just like, oh, what a trip. And I was like, okay, yeah. this is a def- definite exactly. time period. And so uh, he does a good job of that. And many critics said he was over overly simplistic, hmm. but I think he saw this particular play as something he wanted people to consume. He didn't want it to just be the aristocrats uh, coming and getting something from it. This was a play that was also produced for the middle class. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted it to be something that would kind of hit home. Realistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think he achieves that in terms of, and throughout the play, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't try, it's not like Shakespearean or, you know, we read uh, the author that you chose for a morality theme. Um, his his writing was a little more elevated too. Yep. Um, Prime Stevenson. Prime Stevenson's writing was a little more elevated, yeah. and for good reason. Uh, but you definitely can tell that Sejour is trying to keep it under totally understandable. Like yeah. Anybody could grasp what's going on. Absolutely. And you said that when we, you were picking, well, you showed me the the excerpt that you were planning on reading. Mm-hmm. And you were like, "Is it a good one? Like, should we do this?" And I was yeah. like flipping through it like but where's the like the stage direction (laughs) and like I just wanted a big like block of text Uh because that's of course what we go for is we write you know prose what what in comparison to plays you know you have like poetry you have prose what is this is considered drama this is drama so it's its own little little thing I think it's a form of prose but like it's called drama drama okay all right oh I'm learning things so but you said that yeah there is some but not a, a ton. He, he, like, you know, even with what I was reading, he puts little parenthetical uh, things in italics. Like, uh-huh. she rushes from this point. Oh, or, like, okay. she opens the cloak. But he starts each act with huge blocking. Okay. Pieces of blocking. So, like, that was, what I just read you was the whole of scene 16 mm-hmm. of 
it's not act one, but I think like the prologue or the whatever you call it. Oh, wow. So this is like pretty far into it. It is. Okay. And so um, he's just establishing, at this point, he's establishing the plot for his the actual body of the play. Okay. Um, and so there are big pieces of, of stage direction and um, it's good. Like he, you know, when I first read his stuff and I was sitting down and analyzing it for school, mm-hmm. um, I remember thinking he does a really great job of instructing the people who will be producing the visual aspects of the play yeah. because he, he really does want it to mesh with uh, the stuff he's written in terms of like, you know what I mean? Like um, there's a, a spot at one point where we see Jamea 17 years after the child's been taken. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And she's this wealthy Jewish woman, okay? Yeah. But she's been living, she's been disguised as a hag and living in a shack because she's trying to find her baby. Oh, okay. Um, because soon after the scene that I just read, Marta dies. Oh, Like God. a grief. Okay? So, like, she never tells them, <laughs> where this the is where I is. sent your child. Oh, my gosh. And so... Um, That's terrible. So, Jamea is, like, this hag living in this shack, and, and he sets the scene... And he, in the details of the shack, which mm-hmm. may not be super important because if you think about um, the set and the audience looking down, they're probably not going to notice the little nuanced things. But yeah. it's like he describes like the broken window mm-hmm. and the, the like crusty table and things like that. Yeah. So he's, even though I don't know that it's a great way for us to figure out like how he would have written like a novel, mm-hmm. it shows his attention to, de- to detail and how focused he was on achieving a narrative and a plot that would have a fullness of effect. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that's something that I didn't like about screenwriting when I was supposed to, like, (laughs) strip everything down. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that he was able to to have a nice little balance between those things. But, yeah, about the, the actual story, I'm fighting so hard not to try and, like, plug in race. Do it. Hey, we're here to... Well, race in respect of like Southern, mm-hmm. Black, White, U.S. race relations. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's a stretch, and I don't want us to go there. Well, you know what? Our jobs here are to just we're readers who mm-hmm. are dissecting this, and we, if we were having a conversation about this just privately, mm-hmm. you would probably bring that up, and I think we would discuss it. Yeah, that's true. Um, and let's not forget, this was a black man mm-hmm. who was born and raised until his 20s in a slave state yep. that was governed by the Louisiana Code Noir, mm-hmm. which was much harsher than the codes that governed slaves in other states and free people of color in other states. Mm-hmm. So um, one thing I was telling you when I was doing research is the Code Noir was so specific about how slaves were handled in terms of religion. Um, like it said that slaves were to be instructed in Catholicism, uh-huh. okay, and that slaves were not allowed to work on Sundays or Catholic holidays. Yeah. So again, treating them like children or subhumans, you know. But well, you, that's th- yeah, that's what I was saying yeah. yesterday. I was like, okay, so slaves have to like be a part of this religion and stuff, but you justify slavery by saying that slaves aren't re- actual people. You know that they so, don't have a real soul necessarily. Yeah, yeah. and they're stupid, and the, but but you're gonna make them um, conform to your religion. Mm-hmm. And we were the reason we, that came up was because I was like, I don't understand how many black people today can be so hyper religious and at the same time be very anti-gay and right. stuff like that. But that was completely <laughs> different. Well, yeah, but the, the, this is stuff we've been talking about for a couple of days. Yeah, like, um, and what you're talking about and what we're talking about in terms of like 
black people being forced to practice this religion in America mm -hmm. or in Louisiana mm -hmm. and, you know, basically being treated like children. Mm -hmm. Like I said earlier, Jewish people in Europe were not, I'm not going to say it's, it's not the same experience, mm -mm. but yeah. while the Jewish people in Europe in the Victorian age were not citizens of any one country, yeah. black people were not citizens in the United States exactly. after Dred Scott. Yeah. And so it's kind of like there are parallels there, and, I'm sh and I have to believe that Sejour's, the level of empathy he had, especially with this case from 1858. Yeah. It had to surely be tied to his own experiences as a black exactly. man. Exactly. But I think I was trying to like plug it plug in like black right. for Jew here, but yeah. whereas he might have just been like I heard about this case yeah. and it it struck a chord with something in me and that chord in him is mm -hmm. his his right. legacy back home yeah. or whatever. Well, <laughs> and talking kind of go weaving it all back into like this idea of Christianity and Judaism. Mhm. Morality you know, what's right and wrong. One of the interesting things is the the baby, she calls the baby Naomi, mm -hmm. J Jemaya does, which is a, like, Hebrew name, yeah. biblical name, and when the baby is taken by the aristocrats, they change her name to Paola. And so I was going to say, that's a really interesting biblical, uh, oh my gosh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Reference. An interesting biblical reference because... Um, Paola is the Italian for Paula, which is the uh -huh. feminine for Paul. And in the Bible, Paul is a Jew who converts to Christianity uh -huh. and he changes his oh. name from Saul to Paul. So I think Sejour is like tying in all these yeah. different things, uh, making these cross references back to the Bible. Yeah. But he's but in the same breath, if you read the play, it's like like uh, he's he. He's not condemning the Catholic Church. As, he's condemning the institution, mm -hmm. not the faith. Yeah. So what he's saying is, you've taken this child from this woman, mm -hmm. okay, who did nothing wrong. Yeah. Okay. You've stolen her from it. The girl is now a Christian. Uh-huh. Okay. So Jamea does ultimately find the girl, who's like a young woman at Yeah, she's like, what, 17, 18? 18. Oh, God. And it confronts the girl's mother. Ultimately, the girl finds out her reality shattered. Yeah, she's not a Jew. She's like, she I'm not a Jew. Uh -huh. She's like, I'm a Christian. Oh, gosh. But she, circumstances kind of compel her to go to her Jewish mother, not out of love, but out of, like, obligation. Yeah. She goes there, is miserable. Uh-huh. Jamea can do nothing to That's please her. horrible. And you realize that the girl's been ruined. Yeah. And Jamea ultimately is like, just go back. Yeah. Just, like, she's After like... I'm looking I'm gonna, for her for that yeah, long. Yeah, she's like, and she's like, I have all this money... Uh -huh. I have a lake, a house on Lake G Genoa. Uh -huh. She's like we like I, she's got everything, and she and the girls like you. You don't understand. You'll never be my mother. And so it's he's saying like you have it has ruined this yeah natural thing. That's tragic. That is a tragedy. And so I think he's kind of poking at the moral implications of the institution of religion fooling in people's personal lives. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, okay, you're saying that you're doing this thing for the greater mm -hmm. good, but you've completely messed up this, like, really real exactly. life that was perfectly fine exactly. in the first place. And Sejour does another really cool thing, too, throughout the play. And a lot of people, a lot of writers did this, especially, and they still do, but especially in like the Victorian age when people were writing, he draws distinction based off of like character appearance. Mm -hmm. So, like Jamea, 
who's very bitter 17 years later after mm-hmm. that baby's been taken. Yeah. And he describes her as withered and gnarled and sallow. And, and like, there's this, the way he's describing her is almost like, eth- like in very ethnic terms. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then the little girl, Paola, who's Jamea's biological yeah. daughter, is described as fair and um, just physically beautiful. Uh-huh. And so on some level, he is equating the girl's conversion with purity and beauty which is insane because, like, she's physically a copy of her mother. Right. But she's not because he's uh-huh. saying that, I mean, he's alluding to the fact that this girl is totally, you know, physically pristine and beautiful and, mm-hmm. and, and white, basically. Um, Ugh, kill me. Because of her, Christ- <laughs> because she is like a Christian. Uh huh. So he's never condemning the fact that the girl is a Christian. What he does is he frames the rest of the play for her. Her faith has become authentic for her, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. even though she was f- forced into it. He's saying now it means more to her. Yeah. And because in the play, she's contemplating like whether she wants to join the convent or if she wants to marry Octavio. Oh, my God. And so it's like. This Wait, Octavio. Thing, who is Marta's, Marta's son. son. Oh so it's God. like, girl, it's a play. You know how they do. Yeah, they yeah. tie it all together. Doing a little bit too much on that. <laughs> but, you know, he does. It, it's, it's great because, you know. This is a text by like a like a lay person, somebody who's not a man of the cloth. Mm-hmm. He's not a monk. He's not a priest or anything like that. Um, but he is someone who is who has personal faith. Mm-hmm. And even though by our modern standards, I'd be like, well, he's not really being impartial here. He's still like espousing mm-hmm. the virtues of Christian or Christendom. Yeah. Um, but if we think about it in nineteenth-century terms. Mm-hmm. 19th century Catholic terms, uh, even though it seems like a very mild step away from the institution, yeah, it's a pretty big step. Yeah. And the, the weird thing that I noticed in this one scene that I heard from was, like, this respect that each... Well, no, not Marta, but, like, Jamila like, seemed to have this respect for the, the Christian yeah. faith. Like, oh, she was baptized. Like, what have you done? She's dead to you me. You know, that's the thing. I was just like, she was like, you know, I would rather see her dead than, like, mm-hmm. baptized. And I was just like, you must really believe in this uh-huh. Christian faith if you think that splashing water and saying words on your mm-hmm. child's head is going to really do something. Like, that's the yes. weird thing. Like, as a Jewish woman, yes. you're like, who's God? Your God? Like, there are multiple gods, even. It's like the same Bible. It's, it was weird. You know, and it's. I'm so glad you brought that up because there's something finite and unmovable about Christianity mm-hmm. that is that is not the same for Judaism in this. So, like, a Jew can be converted to Christianity, mm-hmm. and once that it happens, there's no there's no going back. Really, that's what it's seeming like. You uh-huh. know, like, oh, well, she's been baptized. Well, you've ruined it. She's dead to but me. But there's no yeah. way to re- like. It's almost saying like there's no way to revoke a Christian. Yeah. Or like to remove a Christian from their faith. Baptism is that important. It's that it's that permanent. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's no equivalent for the Jews. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. and so that's also I'm talking about like permanent Jewish like things that might seem like a baptism, like a brisk. That's a brisk, pretty yeah. permanent, <laughs> right? And for a boy, yeah, I know, right. yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> but uh, I think that if we had a million hours to sit here and talk about Sejour's work, I think we would probably ultimately bring it back to race in America. I really do. I think so, but I think that as a black woman from New Orleans, I am very like. You're just trying to see something that it's not. And you just want him to have always cared mm-hmm. about what was going on back home. Because, oh, this is like this horrible thing where it's like, 
my responsibility is to fight for for my people's rights and seeing him not have done that necessarily mm-hmm. and we you know it's hard for us as 21st century people not to put our expectations on people from the past and we talked about this in mm-hmm. the uh a lot of Equiano episode. Yes. Um, about how we say that, oh yeah, we wouldn't have, he worked on a, uh-huh. a slaving on vessel. A, on, yeah, on a slave ship, like building at once. And we're like, oh yeah, we wouldn't have done that. But it's like, actually, if I was a free person of color and I needed work and I thought that I was helping these slaves by making a, a better vessel, right. maybe I would have been like, this is the most I can do. Like, when you yeah. have this, like, d- dystopian-seeming right. government in place, like, what are you actually going to do yeah. as one person? It's easy for us to sit back and say, ha, oh, we wouldn't stand for this and yeah. that and the other. But could he have written one play and been directly, openly critical of America as a whole? Mm-hmm. Or would that have damaged his reputation even more and that's what he was protecting? I want to know what yeah. was stopping him. I'm, that, that's a curious question because... Um, France was not practicing slavery in 1859 when this was written mm-hmm. in its possessions overseas. Uh, so I don't know. And his first, that short story was, you said, published in an abolitionist paper. In France. So he was an open abolitionist. He was. I mean, he he was, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, yeah. I guess that would function as evidence. Yeah. I mean, if someone came up to you, like, I mean, you as in him, like, at the time and been like, your parents are free people of color. Are you an abolitionist? I doubt that he'd be like, no. Right. I mean, yeah. he's going to, I mean, I don't think he was, if he was for slave, pro-slavery, he probably would have stayed in New Orleans and bought, you know, some people to work for him. Yeah. Well, if, he could have. He, he was in. brown. I Like, if he was pro-slavery, I don't see how that would have. You know, and, and the trouble is, we don't get the chance to go pick their brains. Like, mm. these people who are from yeah. the past. And uh-huh. say, what are you really thinking? What is your private thoughts on, on this? What are your private thoughts on these yeah. subjects? Um, I'd, I'd love to sit down and ask because I feel like there's got to be such a conflict, mm-hmm. especially for somebody like Sejour who you move to France and you just want to be accepted. And there've got to be periods of time where you're schmoozing and you're moving in these circles where you feel like you're them. And then you get home and you look in the mirror and you're like, crud, like yeah. I'll never be that. And there's like, there's probably a lot of trends going on. Maybe there are a lot of people writing about Jews at this time. Maybe so. Like, and he would just didn't want to be, the black guy yeah. who was writing about black things. Right. And I understand that because I don't want that pressure in my own no. art. But at the same time, emotionally, mm-hmm. I there's some, like, oh, what do you call it, uh, obligation to do that. Well, and, you know, like, Frederick Douglass was conscious of uh, Sejour. Really? I saw that. And there was, there wow. were, like, like some American abolitionists were conscious, conscious of him in terms of, oh, there's a black person succeeding in Europe. You know what I mean? Yeah, kind of in yeah. those terms. So maybe he was doing good for the cause maybe just so. by living. And being, like we said, <laughs> like by espousing personhood for black people. Exactly. By saying, Look, hey, I live We my can life. do more than one thing. Mm-hmm. So there was that. And, and also in terms of, like, why he stayed in Paris. I mean, he didn't die till you know, the 1870s, I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, so he could have returned to New Orleans post-Civil War if he wanted to. Yeah, and I wonder if he did visit, you know what I mean? That's a good... Because well, yeah. we talked about Dunbar Nelson and how she never came back, but I think mm-hmm. in that episode we kind of mistakenly made it sound like she never even, like, returned. Right, we're talking about living when we <laughs> yeah. say these things. Yeah. And I don't, honestly, I think, I, I do think Sejour, after he initially moved to Paris, came home for at least a visit or two, mm-hmm. but he never, like, he never felt 
like I think he considered himself a Parisian. Oh, okay. Rather yeah. than a New Orleanian. And that that has happened a lot to a lot yeah. of like uh, we've talked about Americans. I think yeah. mostly Natalie Clifford Barney. Yes. Right. Who oh, like exactly. moved to Paris, had her salon, and like yeah. was like, "This is me now." This is me. I'm it's not one of those that. places, and New Orleans is kind of one of those places for other people too. They come right. there, and they're like, "We can't leave." I've heard so many people who, like, go on vacation in New Orleans, and, like, literally I met someone who was like, I came here, and I, like, missed my flight out, and I haven't left since. I was like, how'd you move your stuff? I believe it. So, yeah, I mean, people get attached to places yeah. and, and form new identities. Yeah, and Sejour is not the, he's, like, not the exception, because I was telling you earlier, the male offspring of these white men mm -hmm. who had concubines yeah. who were women of color they're who were you know these creole young men mm -hmm. um with white fathers they didn't have anything in louisiana waiting for them they couldn't like take over their father's there business look you yeah. know this is this is kind of interesting too talking about race in louisiana and, and mm -hmm. creoles of color louisiana's inheritance laws to this day are, are different than the rest of the united states and Back then, in particular, Louisiana has something called forced airship, just uh -huh. in case anybody's curious. <laughs> and what it says is um, that you cannot disinherit, like today, in this, like in 2018, mm -hmm. you can't disinherit any of your children who are minors or who are handicapped mentally. Okay. So they will automatically inherit 25% of your estate. Yeah. Automatically. You can't disinherit them. And the person to whom you're married will automatically inherit uh, 50%. Okay. And then you have 25% of your estate that's called disposable. Mm -hmm. And so back then, uh, really up until probably, I think, five years ago, Louisiana forced heirship was you cannot disinherit any of your children, regardless, they could be 70 years old. Really? Unless they have tried to take your life or something uh -huh. along those lines. You know, <laughs> yeah. you have to sue. Uh -huh. So, but the, so the thing is, if you're a Creole young man of color, you uh -huh. have a white father, mm -hmm. okay, he's got a white family you got no You're chance of inheriting anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, a small little bit, maybe. And that white family will come after you. Yeah, because <laughs> like, the thing is, the the your father's white wife and uh -huh. daughters and sons aren't conscious of you. Oh, or if they are, they're... Yeah, they, <laughs> if they suspect that you exist, they don't know who you are. Yeah. They might know that your mama is somebody... But it's so crazy, because, like, when you talk about society and what's in town, like, there must have been some real big, Girl. like, secrets no one talk about it. Yeah. Because these, like, concubines and their children wouldn't be mm -hmm. locked inside. They'd walk around. They and went to parties. And, yeah, and parties. Exactly. I mean, and while the young men were sent to Paris to be educated, mm. these white men's daughters were recycled into the ball system to be produced, uh, to be concubines. This, like, patriarchal, just, like, misogynistic crap is terrible. Just these white men walking around, <laughs> doing whatever the hell they want, getting all the money. Black people are enslaved. Like, I'm just like... Isn't it rough? Oh, it's horrible. It's like, it sounds like a nightmare. It doesn't sound like it actually happened. But it was reality up was... until like 90 <laughs> years ago, almost oh, God. 100 years ago. That yeah. was still kind of the norm. That and, is incredible. Um, so, Sejour and other young men like him, they spent much of their lives in Europe. Yeah, why go back to that? And some of system? them, I mean, and you got to think about it, like, yes, yeah, some of them were able to start full lives and have families and stuff, but many of them did not because there were few women in Europe who were interested in Mary. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it didn't happen because certainly it did. I mean, yeah. Equiano is a great example of someone yeah. who, of color, who married We spent this, about 25 minutes yeah. asking how yeah, the well, hell did How did Equiano? this white lady, you know? <laughs> this British woman. <laughs> yeah, so like, I mean, it, it, it's not like, oh, that never happened. But yeah. it's also like, uh, 
it wasn't like the most common thing. Yeah. And and there were some who returned home and who married uh-huh. other Creole women. Yeah. Um and there was a Creole community of color that were not like elite, who were like middle class people who like never went to Europe. You know like what I'm saying? Treme. Yeah. Yeah. Who just kinda like you know, Alice Dunbar Nelson's people were just like regular Creoles yeah. of color who just owned a little store and lived about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it's so varied, but it, it all is interesting when we look back, and especially through a moral context, even the free people of color, how they functioned in that mm-hmm. middle space. So, this was a... I'm glad that we got to kind of look at his stuff together yeah. uh-huh. and talk about it. Yeah, no, it's really good, and I think that this was perfect for the um, theme of morality, because he's not... He's not being overt in, mm-hmm. in like pushing any moral issues, but he's presenting this, yes. and it's obviously a moral issue, and you can take away from mm-hmm. it what you want. Because I'm sure at this time, some people were on the side of the Jewish woman, yes. and some people were on the side of the Christian mm-hmm. woman. So it's just like presenting this this issue yes. and being like, we should we should talk about it, and that's what art does. I mm-hmm. think so Always. good, yeah. And uh, just another little tidbit about the trial upon which this play is based: mm-hmm. the American newspapers were like printing a lot, especially in New England, about what was going on over mm-hmm. in Europe. And it was basically used as anti-Catholic propaganda. So, really? Yeah, so that was fun. They're like, <laughs> look at what, what the saying. Catholics do. They yeah. steal Jewish babies, and isn't that wrong? <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying. You know, like, they, they, literally, they were like, don't they know the best way to convert a Jew is by, like, coercing them into being, you know, like... <laughs> Making a, them want to be a Christian yeah. by stealing their children. Hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, that's terrifying, though. Yeah, so, uh, but I'm glad we got to... Yeah, good Got choice. Thank good you. choice. I'm gonna, best. I'm gonna look up his short story. See if you can find it in English. I'm sure oh, it exists. Yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot you said yeah. it was in French. Well, so see if you can find it. I mean, and again, a lot of works by Louisiana writers are, if they exist, they're still untranslated, floating around in. Well, France. you know what? Now we have Google Translate, so look for my Google yeah. translated. Uh... It'll say like, <laughs> "You woman, funny hair, <laughs> stop touching." It thing. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, look out for that on the blog. Um, we never say follow us on Instagram. But you ought to. At the writer who reads. Uh, Twitter, what's the Twitter? TWW reads. Yeah. Because that was all that was available. And the website is the writer who reads.com and you should read my Handmaid's Tale review it's because cute and wonderful it's cute and wise. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I try not to do boring reviews, so it's like it's never too long. So if you read it, leave a comment, tell me that I'm right about everything and Or let's spark a discussion. Let's spark a discussion and I'll fight you. Um <laughs> <laughs> and Trapper's gonna do a book review. I don't think One he knows days. it yet. Yeah, but She'll tell me which book to do, and I'll read it. <laughs> this is going to be, like, ten pages long. I'm going to be like, we're going to break this into a series. Uh, yeah, that'll be good. Okay. Was that episode 16? That was episode 16. Oh, my God. Okay, this has been episode 16 of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kinchin. And thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more. Write a little better. And, and explore, explore the human, human condition, condition together. together.